This is Tracy Murray, and you're listening to Vibe 105. This is Vibe Talks, exclusively on Vibe 105. Hey, everybody. This is Giancarlo Alino reporting for Vibe 105 with a Vibe Talks segment, and I'm happy to be joined by my guest today. We're going to be talking about Black History Month and his career in the NBA. He is a former NBA champion. He's making his return here to the Vibe 105 airwaves. He's Tracy Murray. How you doing, Tracy? What's going on, Giancarlo? How you been, man? I'm doing great. And Tracy, it's uh, Black History Month now, and a lot of athletes are you know, reflecting on their career and what Black History Month means to them. In terms of uh, what it means to you, like when you hear Black History Month and when this time of year approaches, uh, what do you think about? Why do we get the show in this month, man? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, of course, you, you think about, you know, the people that have paved the way before you, you know, that, that made it possible for your life to be better people that sacrifice their lives, sacrifice their maybe their profession or stuff like that to, you know, for you to be able to prosper later on. And we're all continuing to do it so the people behind us can have a better, better path as well. And just how did you get involved in basketball? Like what age did you really take a liking to it? Uh, I was probably, you know, since, since I was in a stroller, I was in the gym. My dad was a gym rat. He played all the time. He took me to the gym. I was around it. I probably started in basketball camps and like YMCA and Boys and Girls Club leagues, probably around five, six, five or six years old. And then, you know, just used that to progress until I was good enough to play in AAU when I was in the sixth sixth or seventh grade and what uh, age did you really notice like you know what i'm actually good i'm standing out really successful at this i think i can actually make that next step and be a pro one day well being a pro is, is a dream and one thing that you have to do as not only as an ind- as a team but as an individual as well you have to conquer smaller ponds and then go jump in a bigger one. There's, there's a lot of people that's really comfortable being a big fish in a small pond, and then you'll never hear from them. But you got to jump, you got to take risks, and you got to jump out of those ponds into bigger ponds, lakes, oceans, seas, in order to know how you are against the big fish, you know? And that's how you start figuring out, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty good at this game. And that's when you start being recruited by colleges. And that's when you start getting invited to, you know, the Olympic Festival and all these USA basketball events. You know, you have to to build a name for yourself. And the only way to do it is is to keep improving and and keep trying to seek out these bigger ponds or lakes or whatever to jump in and see how you are against, against the big dogs. And who would you say were your influences during that process? Like, I'm sure at the time you're taking a liking to some of the teams in the NBA and some of the other leagues maybe that you're exposed to and some of the players you've interacted with. So during that process, who were some of the players that really influenced you? Well, as a kid, you know, of course, you know, my dad is is my role model and, and, and everything I look up to when it came not only to being a man, but also uh, a basketball player. You know, he's a great human being. He helped others, uh, which which he instilled that into us to do the same. Um, but but as as a basketball player, and you look at the how I played, I'm just a six seven version of my dad who was six three. You know, he shot from way out. He he was a guy that could score the basketball in all three areas. So I, I became him, but in a taller body. So, um, you know, and back then, you know, you go to high school and you're six, seven, six, eight, they're, they're sticking in the post. I was one of the first ones that stepped out 
and was playing on the perimeter, mid-range, and post. And then, the, you know, the end result of that is, you know, my senior year, you average 44 a game. And then you're like, well, how does that happen? Well, I'm scoring in all three areas, and I'm, you know, an 88% free throw shooter. So, you know, it, you find different ways. You, you know, I became a better offensive rebounder because of playing on younger AAU teams. When you're new, they don't pass you the ball. So how, how do you continue to contribute? Well, I got to rebound now. You know, I got, I got to become a better rebounder. And, and if you're not getting any touches, you're, you're really hungry on the offensive glass. So I became a better offensive rebounder, and that contributed also to, to that point per game average my senior year. And then when it comes time to get drafted into the NBA, like what's the whole process like? Because we hear nowadays, like everybody's being recruited from college. Like there's already a campaign going. Everybody's a brand, it seems like, but right when they get into the NBA. But when you were going into it, the game obviously isn't now where it's just a TV deal and just the grand scope of it globally. So was it a different time back then? Like, and did you prefer that as a player? Back then. You had to prove yourself, you know, and you had to go to college and you had to prove yourself on that level in order to get a good look. And I proved myself by my junior year and I was able to go in the first round of the NBA draft. But here was my process. I was, you know, on the all-freshman team of the Pac-10. I was on the all-Pac-10 regular team the second year. My third year, first team all-Pac-10, I was player of the game out of three out of the four CBS player of the game, out of three out of the four NCAA games that I played. I was on Team USA. I was a bronze medalist for the Pan American game. I led the nation in scoring. I mean, not scoring, uh, a three-point percentage of 50%. I've averaged 21 a game for the last two years. So it was a process of a lot of things that happened along the way to grab the attention. I wasn't a social media darling that had all of these highlights that made me look like I was a pro. I had to earn it. And, and, and you know, it, it, was, it was a pay-due process back then, too. Once you got in, you didn't play right away. You had to earn it. I, I paid my dues the first two and a half, three years of, of the NBA. I sat on the bench and tried to learn. By the time it was the end of my career, they were just throwing people in the fire. And, and, and the pay-due process stopped. And I, and I think that sometimes you see... You know, and there's no shade to these guys, you know, that the current guys, because cause I, I love a lot of the current guys. So this is this is not a, a shot at them because it's not their fault. It's the way the rules are and it's the way they run things now. It's, it's not the players' fault. When you throw the players into the fire, you give them value. When they have value, they have say-so because it's a player's league. So now you see load management and a lot of fans, are coming to the game and they may not see their, their, their player that they want to see play. We, we didn't have load management back then. We sat on the bench so early that by the time we started playing, we didn't want to miss a game. We'll miss a practice, but we're not missing a game. And, you know, that's what's, what's different nowadays. And, 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 you know, yes, they've had some back-to-back games taken away, but still, we played a lot of back-to-back games, you know, and, and it was, it was no injuries or no, no sitting out. We just played, you know, that's what you practice for is to play in the game. I think also because they play so many games as an AAU guy that nowadays they play over, kids nowadays in high school play over 150 games a year now. If you count their school year, their AAU team, if they're on the Nike or Adidas circuit or Under Armour circuit, you know, because they got their own leagues where they travel around the country doing that and they play in tournaments on the side of that too. It's like, 
they play so many games that they don't value games anymore. And and I, I think that's sad because that's what you practice for. That's what you work with your trainer for. That's what you build your body up in the summer for is so you don't miss games on, on low management. Just to get into the NBA, that you had to earn yeah, it. You bust your ass to get there. There's no way I'm going to sit out a game. You know, if, 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 if I'm going to miss a game, it's because it's coach's decision, not because of me. Yeah. And I agree too, because I remember there's a quote there, uh, Kobe Bryant, where he talked about that he didn't want to miss games because he thought of the fans that paid the money and saved up because right. not everybody can afford to go every single game. And he thought of those fans that really saved up and they wanted to go see the Lakers play and him play. And he felt that he wanted to owe the fans that. So I respect that mentality of uh, wanting to honor that. And I guess just so hard work that went into getting drafted when it's actually that night on draft night and you're sitting there and you finally hear your name called, what's going through your mind in that moment? It's the most stressful time ever. And, and I probably, it will be hard to sit through another draft. You know, it, say, say my, my daughters come up and they're in the WNBA draft. That's a stressful time. I've already been through it, you know, and, and you're just relieved that it's over once you find out what team it is. But when you're, when you are sitting there, because a lot of people lie, when they sit there and, and they tell you, well, if you're available at 11, I'm going to take you. Or if you're available at 15 or 16, I'm going to take you. And then they don't. And then you don't work out for the teams past that. Now it's like, oh, where am I going to go now? That's the situation I was in during draft day. So it was extremely stressful. I, they had to come get me from the hallway. I wasn't even sitting at my table when I was drafted. That's how stressed I was. I had to take a walk. I was the last one in the green at number 18. So Doug Christie went right before me, and I went right after Doug Christie, 17 and 18. Was that like the teams or in and around there that you worked out with, or was that like a bit of a surprise for you at the time? I never worked out for San Antonio, and I got drafted by San Antonio. The, the I worked out for Atlanta, Houston, and both LA teams. And and those are the guys that they said, you know, if I'm available at that pick that, you know, they're gonna take me. Atlanta took Adam Keefe, Houston took Robert Ory, which that worked out, you know. The Clippers took Randy Woods and the Lakers took Anthony Peeler. So they just every pick was just it, it threw me off from what I was told. So, you know, when that type of stuff happens, then once you are drafted and you know where you're going and you go do media for that city, when you get back home from that, it's like I was I was a workaholic. I was an angry workout guy because I had teams circled on the draft board. People that said they were gonna take I had their 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 team circled for when I see them, they're gonna they're gonna feel the wrath of me. And and that, that carried me through most of my career, you know, just to have a chip on your shoulder and be ready to go at people. And when you're in the NBA, like who are some of your mentors that guided you through the process of being a rookie and really be a successful pro in the league? Uh, I think before I was drafted, just through college, uh, it was Magic Johnson because he worked out with us every summer up at UCLA. So he was giving us a lot of jewels and a lot of knowledge. And just to be there and play with them and to compete with them, you, you, you build a confidence that I can play with these guys. So before then, it was Magic Johnson. Then my three years, my first three years in the league was Clyde Drexler. You know, he was, he was my vet. He took me under his wing. And, he, and, and, and even in the trade from, from uh, Portland to Houston, I was with him in the trade, and we won a championship together. So that, that was awesome. It was awesome to be under his wing, man. And I'm still keeping in touch with him to this day. And then after that year, 
no one was knocking on my door free agent wise because I wasn't proven. I had led the league in threes my, my second year. I had gotten a little bit of time. My third year, I didn't get as much time. We get traded, win a championship. I didn't really physically contribute to the championship. I did in practice, but not in the games. So I'm kind of still unproven as a, as a commodity in the league. So the expansion draft happens, Vancouver, Toronto. And um, I was protected by Houston. And then once the draft was over, they, they said they were going to resign, but then they changed their mind and went another whole direction. So I'm just stuck, you know, another lie. We're going to resign it, another lie. So now training camp is going on, and I'm constantly trying to figure out what Toronto and Vancouver is doing. I had more talks with my agent, and he was saying he was trying to get extra money out of Toronto. I'm like, look, at this point, it's not about money. It's about getting in the league, reestablishing myself. The money will come later. So he told me, you know, what Isaiah said. I said, let me talk to Isaiah. So I talked to Isaiah Thomas, and he told me that there's no money here. You know, it's, it's all, you know, we got a half a salary cap that we're dealing with. I can give you minimum. I said, he said, but I can give you what's more valuable than that is I can give you opportunity, a chance to reestablish yourself. You got shots, you got minutes, you got all of that up here if you want to come. I told him to send me a plane ticket. Isaiah Thomas saved my career. So that's another guy. So I had three very good mentors. Uh, when I was a kid, it was Michael Cooper. I grew up in Michael Cooper's basketball camps. We're all from Pasadena. So between my dad, Michael Cooper, Magic Johnson, Byron Scott's another one, Clyde Dressler, and Isaiah Thomas, I was taken care of. Those guys took care of me. That's an incredible group of uh, players Champion. there. Yeah. Champions. All-time all greats. Champions. All champions and, 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 and Hall of Famers. Like, they saw something in me. And then the ones that aren't Hall of Famers, they should be Hall of Famers. They saw something in me that they said, okay, well, let's let's pull this kid along. Let's help him out. So I'm very thankful. Speaking and, of Black History Month, I'm very thankful to those guys. All those brothers helped me. And even now, too, like, your game, like you're just talking about there, leading the league in threes, just being a three-point shooter. Do you feel, like, when you're watching the game nowadays that you were in the wrong era? Yeah, I, I joke with my dad all the time. I said, you couldn't wait another 10, 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what? I mean, the game always evolves, and it always changes. And, and you can't get mad at – you can't be a, a bitter old player and be like, they're making 10 times the money that we're making. It's because of what we've done, and it's because of what guys before us has done and guys before them have done. So, you know, everybody pays it forward. You know what I mean? It's like for these kids to, to make the type of money that they're making. Uh, the rules have changed, which allows them to move more freely. Um, you're seeing guys score at a crazy rate. I, and then you, then you sit back, and, 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 and that's why I don't understand the comparisons that people always make. Well, so-and-so is better than so-and-so. And so Well, there's different rules that everybody's playing by. You okay? Don't touch Michael Jordan and see how much he gives. Don't touch Iceman Gervin or Bernard King and see how much they give you. Don't touch Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Will Chamberlain and see how much they give you. Don't touch Shaq and see how much they give or Kobe and see how much they give you. So I think everybody's great. You know what I mean? We're all elite. We're all a very extremely small percentage in the history of seventy-five years who have played in the game. I give everyone their flowers because everybody's great. Everybody's elite. 
And just even on that, like everyone is a lead and we're seeing just how every era, there seems to be a passing of the torch in a sense. And we saw LeBron mm-hmm. James recently pass Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So right. when you see that, what runs through your mind there? Because Kareem, a big legend in the game mm-hmm. for what he did in the game and what he did outside the game. So uh, mm-hmm. what were your thoughts on that? At five years old, I told my dad, I said, how can I play on TV like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? That was my introduction to the NBA basketball. How can I play like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on TV? I didn't know it was a job, but how can I play like... He, he said, just do everything I tell you and you'll, you'll do that. That's what my dad said. But I grew up a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fan, major fan. So to grow up idolizing Kareem, we don't have the same type of game, but just to idolize him and then to see LeBron break his record. It was kind of, and, and, and I'm happy for LeBron. Uh, you know, he, he's, a, he's a good dude, man. You know, uh, every time I see him, he's very pleasant. And, and he looks out for my dad. Whenever I see him, he says what's up to my dad. And always been pleasant, man. I, I'm, I'm extremely happy and proud of him. Um, but I'm kind of also sad because that was my childhood hero that he passed. You know what I mean? You thought that that was never going to be broken. But records are made to be broken. LeBron appropriately named the king. He's proven that he's the king. He's the king of scoring. He's number four in assists. He has four championships. I mean, this dude is is doing a lot, and he's still very, very relevant at 38 years old. It just shows no signs of weakening. He's still a star in this league. A major star can get 30 or 40 on any night. How many people at 38 years old are seeing that's able to do that? I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's ridiculous to even think about what he's doing at his age. Like, I was with Kobe on the way out coaching. I was, a, I was a shooting coach on that Laker team. Kobe, the games that he missed, and he tried, trust me, he tried to get out there and play. His body was not allowing him to get out there. LeBron, on the other hand, this dude is running around out there like he's 23 years old still. I mean, it's amazing how he takes care of his body and what he's doing at his age. It is. And like, even just that topic of you're talking about Kareem being like a childhood hero. Like mm-hmm. I want to go back, like, cause in 1998 at the all-star weekend, uh, Wilt Chamberlain was there and uh, Michael Jordan was a big talk of discussion, obviously for what he was doing in the game. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's understandable why Wilt Chamberlain was protected of his era, his legacy. And just looking online, there was uh, a lot of chatter of the conversation they had back there. Did you hear anything of what that conversation was like between those two? No, no, I didn't. I mean, I, I was one of those guys that kind of, I, I wasn't really going to the all-star games every year and all of that stuff. I've only been to like maybe like two or three all-star games. One, I was supporting my mom because she was one of the heads of the mother's, mother's group, the NBA mother's group. So uh, mother's professional basketball players. So I went to the one in, when Vince won the dunk contest in Oakland. Oh, wow. Um, so, so I was there in a suite watching that with, with all the moms. I went to the one in New York because I was in the three-point contest. But other than that, I, I went to one in Dallas because I was working. But other than that, I, uh, Phoenix, I went to one in Phoenix because I was working. So about four of them, you know, New Orleans was another I went to where I was working. But I, I don't go unless I'm, I'm working. You know, I'd rather watch it at home. I'd rather not deal with the, the, the crowd. And, you know, it's really, it's really hectic during that week trying to get from point A to point B, you know, and, 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 and you're just so exhausted by the end of that weekend 
that it takes a week to catch up. So I'm, I'm too old to be doing all of that. <laughs> you mentioned there Vince Carter. And like, I remember watching that as a kid, I was five years old and I mm-hmm. just saw Vince Carter. Like I vividly remember that dunk contest. You were in the arena. What was that like? And what was going through your mind as Vince Carter is doing things oh, that are insane? Man. The arena was electric. It's like he was doing some stuff that no one saw before and took everybody by surprise that they didn't even know how to react. That's how crazy his dunks were. Now, we've seen a couple people put their elbow in the rim, and that was just to mess around at the end because he had it won. But that reverse 360 windmill he did, you know, the one through the legs, like, he was the first one, you know, to do that on TV in front of people. You know, what he did was ridiculous. And let's not discount some of the dunkers in that dunk contest. Tracy McGrady did some crazy stuff. It's like there were some dudes that was trying to compete, but it was they were here and he was just way up here. It just wasn't wasn't any competition. Like you could put all the dunk champions together and they couldn't touch Vince Carter in the dunk contest. Oh wow! All, all of the NBA champions they couldn't they couldn't touch the, uh, Vince Carter. Man, yeah. you know he did dunks he know he can make on the first time. It's crazy. The dunks that he was making on the first time. Come on, man. You got guys trying three or four times to do some of the yeah, stuff. Yeah, and did. miss it. Yeah. It's ridiculous what he did. And Tracy, uh, just to transition a little bit, because I know everyone who sees your Instagram, they'll see another side of you that you're also at WWE events once in a while. You've been at <laughs> WCW shows. And I saw that you're an honorary ooze backstage taking a picture with the bloodline. But mm-hmm. there's a big point in the NBA. <laughs> Acknowledge a tribal chief. There's a big point in the NBA where maybe, I don't know if it was frowned upon in the NBA in 1998 when Dennis Rodman and Carl Malone was going at it in Nitro and that bash of the beach, but we're coming in on 25 years of that. Like, What was the general reaction amongst the NBA players? Was it frowned upon like some members of the media that you see about? I don't think it was frowned upon with the players per se. Um, It was with the media. It was with the powers that be, you know, they don't want their players out there taking risk in a ring. You know what I mean? There were a lot of us that went to that match. I went. Brian Russell went. Antoine Carr went. Uh, there was a couple more that I don't remember that went. But, you know, there was a lot of jazz players there to, to um, support Carl. I mean, it was cool to see them in a different element, you know. And, and – I thought it was cool, man. I thought it was, you know, I mean, Shaq's always done stuff out, out of, you know, the, the basketball realm. Why can't they? Shaq's done stuff in wrestling, but maybe not like that. But still, I mean, we're, we're all, you know, trying to do different things. There's some that are music guys, rappers, producers. You know, everybody was, was doing something outside of basketball at that time. They were venturing more and more out. They were the first two to venture, venture out in the wrestling industry so i thought that they did some groundbreaking things and, and i'm happy and i'm proud of them for that and is there like another event uh like were you at the wrestlemania when it was in toronto yes oh yes. wow uh, uh, me and jyd were doing fan access matches the dark matches that be a fan access we were bringing people to the ring we were like the, the guest managers wow so we were doing fan access work after practice we were in the in the um press conference rick flair had me and jyd in the headlock during the press conference you know it was fun man it was fun being actually a part of 
you know, the WWE weekend, the WWE family during that time. It was, it was really cool. I've, I had already had relationships with them, you know, prior to that. And then, that, you know, just being around, they asked, hey, would you guys like to? Yeah, I would love to. You know, this would be cool. I, I, you know, it's the first time I saw a young Brock Lesnar. I did, did a dark match against Brock Lesnar before he hit TV. I saw a young Randy Orton stretching, getting ready to go do a dark match in there. These guys are, are major stars. I saw them before they even hit TV, which was dope. You know, I thought that was cool. I led Crash Holly to the ring. I did something against Perry Saturn with Crash Holly and, and Brock Lesnar. So it's like, it was cool, man. It was and, uh, Tommy Dreamer, Tommy Dreamer and Saturn. It's like, it was cool, man. It was cool to be a part of that. But I'm going to let you know where, where the WWE relationship started. My cousin Gavin, rest in peace. He had spinal bifida. He was born spinal bifida. And on Saturday mornings, he used to control the TV. And it was wrestling with Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and Big John Studd and all those guys, Piper. So, you know, of course, we're like, man, turn this stuff off, man. We want to watch a game or something. But after a while, you start watching it and you start understanding it. And then it starts growing on you. And then you're sitting there watching it with him. And I started seeing that these guys are his heroes. So as I got more successful basketball-wise, I made that relationship with some. I, I met Hulk Hogan at a charity event. And then I ended up being in a, a co-charity, a, a co-chairman of a charity event with him in Toronto, the Bloorview McMillan Foundation Golf Tournament. So I had a relationship with him. Then after my championship in, in, in 94, 95, they... The business was kind of down. Nitro was trying to come up. Hulk Hogan had crossed over. Him and Monster Man had crossed over to the other side. So the WWE was doing baseball diamonds at the time. So they did a triple-A baseball field in my area, Rancho Cucamonga. So I went, and, and, and I was like, you know, this is before security and everything, you know. So I'm like, uh, I stopped at the box office. I'm like, I, and it was like extremely early, but the guys were in there early. I was like, um, you know, I'm Tracy Murray and, you know, played for the Rockets. And, you know, it's like, are the guys in there? And then she's like, oh, yeah, go ahead and go in the back. Now, how do you do that nowadays? <laughs> so I walked into the, the, the dugout and Godfather and, and, and Undertaker and, and, uh, and Kevin Nash like, hey, what's up, man? Because they're, bat they're former basketball players. Yeah. So I was invited in right away. And then, you know, sit in there and talk to them and develop a relationship with them. And I've done it throughout all of these years, and I was able to take my cousin in the back, meet all of his heroes, all of them know him on a first-name basis. Triple H took care of us, Stephanie took care of us, and they continue to take care of me and my family to this day whenever they're in town. So I'm thankful for the relationship with WWE and how they treated my cousin. You know, just, just our relationship. I'm still brothers to this day with, you know, Undertaker and Godfather and Rikishi. BSK, I'm an honorary BSK member. You know, it's you know, it's hard to get the honorary, you know what I mean? When they think that much of you and then slap the honorary tag on you, the Godwins, man, they, man, you are honorary. You, you probably should be the regular BSK. I'm like, man, no, you guys put that, you guys did that, man. You know, I, I'll, I'll stick with the honorary because you guys got a different type of brotherhood, man. I respect what they do and they know I respect what they do. I respect their relationships. I res you know, they're all athletes. When you respect their industry, they respect you back. Thanks for sharing that. Like just Steven, you mentioned Undertaker, like outside of character. Now that fans are seeing it, is that the Undertaker you always knew? I always knew that guy. I always knew Mark Calloway. He's, he's the coolest dude in the world. Man. Like just to listen to the stories that he, 
I, I don't know if you've been to any of the, I'm going to go to the one at WrestleMania, the, the one-man show. Uh, I'm going to go check it out. I'm going to take my wife. My, you know, it's, it's like my wife knows him. It's like we're all like a big family, man. It's like to hear some of the stories, you, you can't believe them sometimes because you're like, no way, that couldn't have happened. But, you know, when Godfather confirms it and, 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 and then the Godwin confirm it and Rikishi confirms it, I was like, man, it was, a, it was a crazy time back then. I was like, what? You got the it's crazy, man. But it's like it's like I'm I'm so happy and thankful to see them make it through those days to where they are now in their lives. You know what I mean? Live to tell about it. They're legends. They're in the Hall of Fame. They got kids doing well in the business. I mean, when Rikishi's kids are doing in the business, man, that's his whole family, man. That Samoan bloodline is just awesome. And they're good people. They're good people, man. And Tracy, uh, before we wrap up here and let you go, uh, how can our listeners and viewers here at Vibe 105 follow you on social media and stay up to date with everything you're doing in basketball? Well, on Twitter, I'm at Real Tracy Murray. On Instagram, at Real Tracy L. Murray. And Real Tracy L. Murray on Facebook. You can find me on, you know, during any UCLA broadcast on the Pac 12 um, series satellite um, station. Afterwards, I'm on ABC7 with the Slam Dunk show in Los Angeles locally with Michael Cooper and Norm Nixon and Rob Fukuzaki and Austin Crochure. So um, we, we have a good show, and, and uh, I'm just having a good time, man, enjoying coaching my daughter. I'm, I'm just thankful for this life, man. You know, I don't take a day for granted. Shout out to Toronto, my second home, man. It's like uh, the, the, the love is, is real from me there. It's from me to you, the love is real, and I, and I thank you for your support and love. I really do. Highly recommend that follow. And Tracy, I really appreciate you sharing your time and coming on here on Vibe 105 to talk about Black History Month, your career, and a little bit of pro wrestling with us. Thanks a lot, Tracy. Yeah. No problem. Thanks, Doug Carlin. Vibe Talks, exclusively on Vibe 105.